Well, we are in week four of our four-week series, and for all of you who doubted me, here we are. In week four of a four-week series, and guess what? We're going to finish it today. So some of you are shocked by that because you're like, you never do a four-week series in four weeks. It's always six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. And so, but I'm excited for this morning. I pray that you are as well. Uh, we have been going through a journey through the, not only the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, but also the person of Joshua and trying to gain and learn from insight by the Holy Spirit, how we can live strong and courageous faith in our world today. And so I pray that you've experienced a, a growth and a strength in your own faith. I pray that you've seen a desire for the Lord increase through this series. I pray that you've realized that you are a leader right where God has planted you. you you are exactly where God wants you, and he can cause you to be a leader right where you are. You don't have to be on a stage. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to have a position to be used of God to make an impact in your world and in your area of influence. So I pray that you've seen that take place over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I also pray that the, the point of this thing, and I've tried to mention it multiple times every week, but the key of this whole series, the reason we started this four-week journey through the person of Joshua and the book of Joshua is that we would discover that victory in this life comes through faith in God and obedience to his word. That victory in this life for Christ, that means victory over a temptation to sin, victory as we lead our families for Christ, victory in our area of influence that we would represent Christ well, that we would honor him well. And we said this early on, there's no perfect leader right? We've all stumbled. We all need grace. There's no one that stands in their own strength and their own goodness. And we established this even early on that we will not stand before God and be entered into his heaven because we were good enough. Amen. That's a huge amen. Because if I get in on my own merit, that means I don't get in on my lack of merit. But if I'm entered into heaven only and only by the grace and faith in Christ, it's only in the finished work of the cross. It's only by trusting in what Jesus has already done. Then praise God, if he did everything to grant me salvation, then I can do nothing to lose salvation. That it's only by grace through faith that we receive Christ as our Lord and personal Savior. He gives us eternal life, indwells us with his Holy Spirit. We live this life as a follower of Christ. We leave this world, and as the Apostle Paul says, to die is gain. I leave this life, and I'm entered into the joy and the rest of the Lord to experience the fullness of what the presence of God really can be. And that is not because I was good enough, or I did enough good things, or I helped enough old ladies across the street. That's not how it works. You can't go to church enough. You can't write a big enough tie check. You can't read the Bible enough. You can't be baptized enough. It has to be a personal decision where we repent of our sins and we realize that we're fallen. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one that does good. Now, that doesn't mean people don't do good in our understanding of that word. What it means is no one can do enough good to gain the perfection that God requires. But praise God that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born of a virgin. And we're so close to Christmas. I can just start, I can hear Nat King Cole singing in my house. I can just, I can almost feel it. It's so close, right? We have on our uh, satellite radio, I don't know if I should admit this in church, actually, now that I was going to go there. <laughs> we're just going to go there. You guys can just pray for me or, or I ask for your forgiveness or whatever. I don't know. But just don't email me, okay? Don't do that because that's, that's going to go in the trash. But we may have on our satellite radio, uh, like 50s gold music station, okay? 
I don't know if that's weird for you to hear your pastor say that out loud, but it's true. Um, because I grew up, my parents were not Christian, and I grew up in a home where, like, 50s and 60s was, like, when I was in junior high, I brought 50s and 60s music was, like, current music. And I, went, I remember in sixth grade, we were talking about music artists that we like, and I was like, oh, yeah, I like Motown, and, you know, I like the Temptations, and they were like, the who? The what? I was like, yeah, I like the who, too. They're pretty cool. I was like, that's... And they were like, what are you talking about? And I realized then, oh, this is actually like 30 years ago, right? So every now and then, well, I flipped on the 50s gold just because we were driving down the road. And I was like, I wonder what's on. And one of his songs, Nat King Cole's songs, was on. And it was like, everybody in the van was like, it just feels like Christmas. It's not even a Christmas song, but it just feels like Christmas in the van all of a sudden. But I love Christmas because I love getting all the decorations out. And some of you are a little too excited for Christmas. I'm not going to point anyone out or look at anyone Okay, but some of you already have Christmas decorations up. Okay, I'm not going to name names, but it's just, it's a little much. Okay, I love Christmas, but it's got to be the day after Thanksgiving, right? Who puts their tree up the day after Thanksgiving? Because that's the way you're supposed to do it. Who, who's done that? Who's living right with the Lord? Okay, a few hands. All right. <laughs> Praying for the rest of you guys. Um, but I love Christmas. Why? Not so much for the gifts, although that's fun. It's great to give gifts. By the way, don't be, don't be a Scrooge right? Give gifts, have fun with it, enjoy it, okay? But I love Christmas because it reminds us that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, of his own choice and his own choosing, God the Father did not force Jesus to take on flesh and die on the cross. The Bible is very clear that as much as God the Father loves you, Jesus loves you. And because Jesus loved you exactly where you are and exactly who you are and with all of the sin that you've committed, it doesn't mean he's okay with the sin. He's very much against the sin, so much so it took his life to pay for the sin. But he was born of a virgin and he lived a sinless life and died on a sinner's cross. And in a couple of months, we get to celebrate that coming of Christ. And I pray that as you get ready for that and you start getting around Thanksgiving and your heart and mind are getting on that, that you pause and you remember the greatest gift that was ever given, that could ever be given, is eternal life through Christ. And so why are we journeying through Joshua? Because I want us to understand that victory in this life does not come through what's in your bank account. It doesn't come from what's sitting in your driveway. It doesn't come from your retirement plan. It doesn't come from your relationships, as great as those are. It comes from a personal relationship with Christ that is evidenced through faith in him and obedience to his word. And then when we start to live as followers of Christ, with that as our focus, man, we'll see victory in our lives. Victory over sin. Victory over stress. Victory over the culture that wants to make us feel certain things, feel like we should be freaking out and we're not. Why are Christians not freaking out or shouldn't be freaking out? Because our God is greater than the White House. Our God is greater than legislation. And so we don't fear... Now, I'm not saying we don't get out there and vote, do your part, all good. But we don't fear. Why? Because we already have the victory in Christ. Amen. And so I want to go through these last couple of chapters of Joshua. And I want us to see what we can glean from the word of God this morning by the working of the Holy Spirit that we would honor him in all things. This morning, as we conclude our series, I want to look at the call of God on our lives to make a choice. We've talked about God using Joshua as a consistent and faithful leader. Not a perfect leader, but a consistent and faithful leader. Why? Because he trusted in the word of God, dwelt in the word of God, and had confidence that God was with him. Those three keys made Joshua the great leader that he was. He trusted in the word of God. 
He dwelt in the word of God. That means he, he meditated is what the King James says. Meditated there just means to speak the word to yourself. To continuously speak the word of God to yourself. It doesn't mean you literally walk around talking to yourself out loud. If you want to do that, hey, no judgment. But that's not necessarily what it's saying. It's just saying it's always on our hearts and minds. And what is the word of God going to always draw us back to? That through Christ, in our understanding as New Testament believers, he is with us. He is with you. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Do you realize there is no one else in your life that can make that promise to you and guarantee you they can keep it? There are all kinds of people in our our lives that want to promise us they'll never leave us or forsake us. They'll never leave us. They'll never forget about us. They'll never forsake us or turn away from us. And they mean it. They really mean it in the moment. But let's be honest, we don't know what tomorrow brings. So I can't guarantee you I'll never leave you or forsake you. I can't tell my wife that and guarantee that's the case because I don't know. Do you realize that when Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, he's the only one that can not only make the promise, but keep the promise. And so Joshua was a consistent and faithful leader. Why? Because he trusted in those things. We talked two weeks ago about how God uses the unexpected in the story of Rahab. And I, I, if you missed it, you can go online on our app, North Goodland BC in your app store or just northgoodland.org and you can catch up on that. And last week we talked about how God does the unexpected with a very riveting depiction of that, an illustration of that and a very, very accurate depiction of that with the veggie tales that we showed you a little bit of. And some of you, hopefully you went home, you dug out the DVD, right? You pulled that in, you maybe YouTubed it and you're like, I just want to watch veggie tales again. It just brought me back to my childhood. But we're talking about how God does the unexpected. He, he sets things in motions that we don't understand. He has plans and strategies that we would never believe. But by faith, we trust and we walk by faith and not by sight. This morning, I want us to realize that God calls us to make a choice. Joshua chapter 23, if you would turn there with me, please. Joshua 23, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats, there are some Bibles there. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can just turn to page 185. So if you're using a Bible provided, page 185, Joshua 23. And thank you so much for having the word of God with you today. If you have it on a device and maybe you're using one of the Bibles provided, maybe you're using the Bible that you brought, um, just thank you for having God's word because ultimately this is why we're here. Amen. Uh, If you came here this morning to hear my opinions or thoughts, you're going to be sorely, sorely mistaken in what you received this morning. I have nothing to give. I only have the word of God. And I pray that his word would speak to us as we open ourselves to it, as Pastor Greg even prayed here just recently. So Joshua 23, let's look at verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass a long time after that, the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies around about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. So he was, he was up there in years. Verse 2. And Joshua called for all Israel and for their elders and for their heads. This would be the heads of the tribes of Israel and for their judges and for their officers and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age. And notice that doesn't end with a period. He's going to begin what's known as his farewell address. He's going to give some closing remarks to the nation of Israel before he leaves this world. Now, we're jumping all the way to the end of the book of Joshua. So I want to give you just a quick little breakdown of what takes place between where we left off 
in Joshua chapter 6 at the battle of Jericho, which again, praise the Lord that God gave them victory over that city, gave them victory in that moment. We jumped over quite a bit to come all the way now to the end of the book. So if you're taking notes, and you know my encouragement on that, I always love to hear people taking notes and wanting notes, and so I pray that you're doing that. Uh, If you want a copy of my notes, just let me know. I'd love to send that to you either digitally or or print them off for you. But Joshua chapter 6 through 13, the first part of 13, so 6 through 13a, this is a record of the battles won and lost by the Israelites. And if you read those chapters, you're going to find out there was a lot more victories than there were defeats. And you find out in chapter 7, there is a defeat that comes upon the nation of Israel because of sin that was committed when they left Jericho. And I want to encourage you, go back and read that. We don't have time to go through all of that. But I want to encourage you that, that sin has a consequence. And I know that we have grace and we are forgiven and we are restored. And praise God that he has given us his grace. But here in this case, we see that this man was unrepentant in his sin. He hid what he did and he tried to keep it secret. And because there was no repentance, there was no seeking of forgiveness, there was none of that. God brought judgment. And part of that judgment was on the nation of Israel as well as this man individually. So we see there are defeats recorded, but many, many victories. Uh, Just chapter after chapter, you see God providing another victory. Another uh, enemy was defeated. Another enemy was overthrown. And God just was showing that he was with the nation of Israel. Chapters 13, the second half of chapter 13, all the way really through chapter 22, we see a record of the dividing of the land to the tribes of Israel. So this is where the people have come into the land and they're starting to be able to divide the inheritance of the land. So each tribe, and with some cases half tribes and things like this, are getting their inheritance promised all the way back to Moses, to even to Abraham, that God would provide this promised land. And so that's what you see in chapters 13 through 22, the dividing of the land. And it's very, very specific. And I know when you read through chapters like that, it's hard, right? Let's just be real for a minute. It's hard. Because it's just like, so-and-so, the border went from here to here and south to north and east to west. And it's like a lot of repetition. And you might think, Man, what am I doing? Like, can I just skip over all this? Like, I get it. They got the land. We're fine. But I encourage you to read through it. It takes a little work. It takes a little effort. But to read through it. Because for me, uh, this series kind of came out of my own personal morning readings. Um, I just started reading through Joshua here a couple months ago. And just felt the Lord leading me there. And after reading through the book and doing some notes and things like that just through the book. God was impressing on my heart to just share it as a series. But I was reading through here, and there was many mornings. Guys, I'm going to be honest. There was many mornings where I was just like, oh, I can just skip this chapter. I kind of know what it's saying. I can just skip over this. But through doing this, I came to something that I never caught before. And so when you look at the dividing of the land, something to note is Caleb, one of the 12 spies that went into the land originally, And Joshua, their inheritance is recorded for us. And what's interesting is Caleb is given his inheritance first, and Joshua is given his inheritance last. So I thought that was interesting, that God would orchestrate it that way, that when the 12 spies went into the land, and only two said, God can give us the victory, it was Caleb and Joshua. And isn't it amazing how God works, that when they come into the land, And they're receiving the inheritance. Caleb is the first one to receive an inheritance. All the other tribes receive theirs. And then Joshua, the leader, the consistent and faithful and godly and strong warrior, mighty leader. Well, he's last. And I love that. Because it reminds us that it 
in the world's eyes, we're always going to be last as followers of Christ. And that's okay. Because we will not finish last with Jesus Christ. And he will see what we do. And he will understand the work that we've done. And we will be rewarded. Now, we know what we'll do with those rewards. We'll cast them back at his feet in his act of worship. But I love that we see that both Caleb and Joshua were rewarded for their faithfulness. In just believing and trusting in God. Something I had missed, that detail I had missed in the many times I have read through Joshua before. And so I love that the Lord gave that to us in the word of God. And if we aren't consistent in the word of God and just taking time, we'll miss those small things that really have a big impact. So now we find ourselves in chapter 23, which is Joshua's, again, famous farewell address. In his final encouragement to the children of Israel, he is approximately 110 years old at this time. And I believe that we can see some keys to finding victory through faith in God and obedience to his word. I know Pastor Greg prayed, but let's pray and ask God to affirm the word in our hearts and minds that we might be open to it, pliable to the spirit, that we might leave change. Let's pray. Father, we pray for just that, Lord, that we'd be open to your spirit, that as we are in your word and talking about your word, Lord, I pray that you would go before us. You'd give us wisdom and understanding. You'd open our hearts and our minds. Lord, this is not just about our intellect or our emotions. It's both. We need to understand some things intellectually and then follow that with that truth with emotion. Lord, I pray that we would never put emotion before truth, but truth always before emotion. Because the truth of your word and finding the word as that foundation is truly where we stand. We stand on the word of God, which leads us. And so I pray you'd help us to grow in our faith. Lord, I know there's many in this room, maybe many watching online that feel as though their faith is pretty insignificant, that they're doubting right now. They have tons of questions. They're not really sure about some of these things in the word. They're not sure even about you, not sure about the gospel. They, they don't really have a professing faith. Lord, I pray that they would know that you welcome them their questions, their doubts, their concerns. I pray that they would know they don't need to shy away from those questions, but be open enough to to lay it out there, to pray and say, look, I don't know if this is true, but if it is, would you speak to me through your word? Maybe there's some believers here today that are doubting or growing weary in their faith, growing weary in well-doing, as we all can in this world, because it is tough, physically speaking, to be a Christian in this world. But Father, I'm so thankful that you didn't tell us it would be easy. You told us there would be trials and and difficulties. We live in a fallen world with fallen man, and it just happens. But I'm so thankful that while you also made us aware of that reality, you also told us that you would always be with us, walk with us. You'll be in the fire with us. When we're in the boat and the seas are raging in a storm around us, you're not over on the shore, you're in the boat with us. And you can speak calmness and peace even in the midst of the storm. And so, Father, in all these things, we ask that we'd be changed into the image of Christ. Speak through your word, Lord. Help me to not get in the way of what you're doing. I pray that I would not hinder anything that you're doing today. Thank you for this amazing church family that we get to be a part of. And I pray that you'd be glorified in all this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to look at this morning quickly, and you guys know what that means. Absolutely nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Quickly means quickly to some people. It don't mean that here. Um, I do have a crock pot going at home, so I do got to keep an eye on the time. So, you know. Um, But I do want to look at four things this morning. 
four keys to the last two chapters of Joshua. Now, I need to say this. We're not going to go verse by verse through the last two chapters. There is a lot of verses there. But what we are going to do is, as best as I, I could, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, as I was trying to pray about wisdom on this, I want to give you four keys that I think summarize the gist of the last two chapters, the idea behind the last two chapters of what Joshua's farewell address was trying to drive home to the nation of Israel. So we're going to kind of bounce around in chapter 23 and chapter 24. And so we'll try to pick out some verses that speak to the heart of Joshua and what he's calling here. But I pray that you'd also hear, this is not a man who is demanding in a sense of, you better do this because I'm Joshua. This is a man that you can hear his heart and his, his plea to the people of Israel to say, this is what God has asked. This is what's best. I'm so thankful that God has our best in mind every single time. When he tells us something, it's not because he doesn't want us to not experience life. He wants us to live the abundant life. And so often people think, well, if I give myself to Jesus, I got to give up all this stuff. I got to stop doing this and stop doing that and stop doing this. I'll promise you all the things you think you have to give up when you receive what Christ has for you, you'll realize you didn't need those things anyway. They were just a distraction. They were just a hindrance. They were actually harming you, not hurt or not encouraging you. They were hurting you, not helping you. And so here I want to talk quick, quickly about these four things. So chapter 23, let's look at verse 8. So we're going to start in 23 and verse 8. And the first key we want to address is Joshua encourages the people to be diligent to the covenant with God. This is really a summary statement for both chapters. But really, this is where we're going to start. To be diligent in the covenant with God. Look at chapter 23 and verse 8. But cleave unto the Lord your God as you have done unto this day. Look at verse 11. Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves, that you love the Lord your God. Now go to chapter 24 and verse 14. So again, we're jumping around a little bit, but chapter 24 and verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. We have to pause here for a second because I want to note this when you're reading the Word of God and you see a reference to something in historical record. We have to pause and say, okay, what does that tell me? What is Joshua? We're not going to dwell here, but what does Joshua reference in 2414? He talks about the other side of the flood. So he's saying before the flood, there was idol worship. There were the people that worshipped idols. They're your ancestors. Don't do that. But what we have to pause here is how does Joshua view the flood in the book of Genesis? As historical fact or figurative language? It's historical fact. You notice he says this, and by the way, Joshua is considered a book of historical fact. It's a historical narrative. So it's a history book in story form for the word of God. And the Hebrews, the Israelites, never doubted the historical accuracy of the book of Joshua or Judges. And so you see here in Joshua's mind, the flood, that really happened. But today, do you know there's many Christians that deny the flood ever happening? Or they say it was a regional flood? It wasn't a global flood. Again, just taking away from the word of God. But yet here again, we read Joshua's mindset is, hey, you guys all have heard about that flood, you know, that global flood. 
On the other side of that, your ancestors worship idols. Don't worship the idols they worshipped, and don't worship the gods that they worshipped in Egypt. And so again, both referring to historical fact. But here we see this idea of a call, a, a, a commitment being asked to commit ourselves and themselves to the covenant of God. I love the word in chapter 23 and verse 8, and we're going to spend some time looking at that. So 23 and verse 8 says, But cleave... Unto the Lord your God. Joshua calls the people to cleave to the Lord. Now we recognize this word most likely from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and the direction to husbands to leave their father and mother and cleave unto their wife. So I'm just going to encourage if you're sitting next to your wife this morning, go ahead and just give her a little squeeze. Give her a little squeeze. Come on, guys. You can do it. Give a squeeze. Come on, Vic, you got to do it. Oh, okay, fine. I just gave you guys a great opportunity. That would have been great. Mm, I just want to cleave unto you, honey. Like, that would have been beautiful. Some of you guys missed it, though. It's fine. We'll give you another opportunity at some point. So here we see this idea. And I want to talk about this word cleave for a moment. This word cleave and what Joshua is referring to when he refers back to Genesis 24. What did Moses mean when he wrote that in Genesis chapter What did Jesus mean when he referenced Genesis 2 in the New Testament when he was asked about marriage? And what does God's word say of marriage? Where the word means literally to cling or cleave to. To cling or cleave to. To be joined together. To be joined together. So you see in marriage, that's what marriage is. Marriage is the union, God-sanctioned union between a man and a woman And I need to say that again for those that maybe have heard something different. It is a man and a woman that are joined together in marriage according to God's word. And when that takes place, those two individuals become one, the Bible says. And it is a beautiful picture we find out later in Ephesians chapter 5 of Christ and his church. That when we receive Christ, we are no longer outside the body of Christ. Now we are one with Christ. And so we praise God for marriage. We praise God for the illustration that it is, humanly speaking, for Christ's love for his church. And so here we see this word means to cling or cleave to, to be joined together. But there's another part of this definition I want to unpack for a moment. And that is to pursue closely. To pursue closely. When Joshua tells the children of Israel to cleave unto the Lord your God, God is not there in the physical. They can't physically, as some of the guys did, grab and cleave unto the Lord. Like, we can't physically grab onto him. So what was Joshua referring to? Well, through the covenant that God instituted, they could be joined with him in worship. Through sacrifice, through coming before what his word says, they can be joined together with God. But I believe part of this definition that also is implied is to pursue God closely. To, to if you will, chase after him. To pursue after him. This emphasis is on a strong desire. A strong desire for someone or something. I do love that to pursue is part of the definition because what Joshua is calling the nation of Israel to is not a casual relationship with God. He is not calling them to surface religion. He is calling them to pursue God with all of them. He goes on to say this later, does he not? Verse 11, take good heed to yourself, or take good heed therefore unto yourselves that you 
love the Lord your God. What does that love look like? Well, he told us already earlier in verse 8, the love for God looks like pursuing God. And this is obvious, again, in human relationships. When anyone here that was married, when you were dating your soon-to-be husband or wife, you pursued them to a certain degree. Now, maybe one pursued more than the other. Okay, we won't get into that. Okay, how many, questions, how many times did you have to ask her out before she said yes? That's not important. The important thing is she said yes. Amen. How many no's you got? That's just persistence. Amen. So when you understand this, though, from a human aspect, we're like, well, yeah, because I love this person, I want to pursue them. I want to get to know them. Right? Part of pursuing someone in a relationship is not just so that you can marry them. After you get married, guess what you continue to do? You pursue them. You want to get to know their likes and their interests and their loves and their, so that you can be something for them to help them, to show love to them. Right? You're pursuing them. Joshua's call is the exact same idea. You say you love God, but do you pursue closely after him? Are you chasing after him? Do you want nothing but him is the idea. The Apostle Paul, later in the New Testament, gives us a similar command. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. And I lo- this verse is so easy to remember, so I encourage you to, to memorize it if you have the ability to or the time to do it. 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful lusts. What a challenge. Flee the lust of the world. Flee the youthful lust, which just means a way of saying immature lust. That you want something, you pursue after something that you lust after. You desire this thing because the world says you should have it. This is not just referring to sexual lust, but also any lust. If you lust after things in greed and pride so that your neighbors go, wow, they got it pretty, pretty well off. They're doing pretty good. That's youthful lust. That's immature lust. So what's the opposite of this? He says, flee those kind of lusts, those pursuits, those endeavors, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That would be the church for, for us as believers. We follow after these things, righteousness, faith, charity, peace. And we do that with the body of Christ. Now, the word follow there actually means to run after, to run swiftly, to reach the goal, or to pursue. So what is Paul saying? It's the exact same thing Joshua was saying. Listen, you say you love God, and those of us in Christ, we have experienced the fullness of salvation and the fact that our sins are forgiven, and we have a relationship with God. We need to pursue him. We chase after him. Not that he's far from us, and that's the only way we're going to catch up to him. It's saying, in my heart, I want to be near him. I want to be in his presence. So how do we pursue God? Because we hear this stuff in church. You should pursue God. Awesome, preacher. I want to pursue God. And then the preacher moves on, and you're like, I have no idea how to pursue an entity that I can't physically see. We pursue God through his word. We pursue God through prayer. And we do it in also acts of service. Acts of kindness. See, we serve those in our community with acts of love and kindness, not so that God will save us and forgive us, but because God has saved us and forgive us, now we can extend that grace to others. And if you get that flipped, that's legalism, that's works-based salvation, and you'll find yourself lost and apart from Christ. But in Christ, James says, that we work out of our salvation, not to gain our salvation. So how do we do that? We pursue him and we also pursue him with the body of Christ. 
Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews 10. We provoke one another unto love and good works. We encourage each other to chase after God, to pursue him with the right heart. So again, what does this tell us? This is not a call to casual Christianity, but a call to a diligent pursuit of a deeper relationship with the Lord, which leads to the fruit of the Spirit being evidenced in our lives. Those are the things that Paul says that should be evidenced is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Joshua did understand something. He mentions this in 24, 14. We referenced that verse. We read it already, but I want to go back there. He talks about this idea of put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood. Put away the gods. Put away the idols. You see, Joshua knew the greatest distraction to pursuing God with the right heart and the right mind was that we would be tempted by the idols of our world to pursue those things. See, just as Joshua's people, the Israelites, were tempted by the idols of the land, literal idols that were being worshipped by the Canaanites, people that still lived in the land that they were taking over, if you will. In our day and age today, we have idols of all different kinds in our day and age, in our world. And just as the greatest distraction from pursuing God with all of us is the idols of our world, it was the same for the Israelites. See, because we're going to pursue something. You're going to pursue something. What that thing is, is up to you. Will it be a relationship? Will it be a raise? Will it be a career advancement? Will it be a new car? Will it be financial freedom, supposedly, which doesn't really exist? Will there be, what will it be? And there's nothing wrong with pursuing those things in the right way, in the right, or with the right heart. But if I'm pursuing him first, everything else will fall into place. But if I pursue any of these things first, my relationship with him will falter. I'm still saved. I'm still a child of his. I'm still his son or still his daughter if you're in Christ. But the relationship will falter. So multiple times in these two chapters, Joshua warns the people of the danger of turning to the idols of the land. their other gods or strange gods. The Israelites' greatest weakness was the desire to be like other nations instead of encouraging the other nations to be like them and worship their God. They wanted to worship the tangible gods of pleasure in their day and age, and this led them to walk away from God's word. This ultimately will lead to the cursing and to the troubles they find themselves going through in the book of Judges, which if you want to continue this study, you can read through Joshua prayerfully. You've been doing that or have done that. Maybe you'd continue into the book of Judges, and you'll see instantly the people turned away from God, trusted in idols, and God brought oppression upon them. This is also all outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy 28, we've been talking about this on Wednesday nights because we're going through the book of Exodus. This was all outlined to the people of God, and God was very honest with them about this. So, cleave unto the Lord your God. Now, that was just point one of four. So I may have been a little presumptuous, and the Lord may humble me if I have to keep going into next week, but we'll just see how we do. I love you, Lord. You're so funny. You're so funny how you work. Um, so second point I want to bring forth. So he tells them to cleave unto the Lord, to be committed to the covenant. Secondly, he encouraged them to be guarded against marrying Canaanites, to be guarded against marrying Canaanites. Now this sounds foreign to us in some ways, but we'll unpack this a little bit. Look at chapter 23 and verse 12. So chapter 23 and verse 12. So we read verse 11, right? Take good heed therefore unto yourselves that you love the Lord your God. 
Else, if you do in any wise, go back and cleave. So there's that word again. Unto the remnant of these nations, the Canaanite nations. So you're going to cleave unto something. Are you going to cleave unto the Lord? Are you going to cleave unto an idol? That's what he's saying here. It says, go on, say there, uh, cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you. So he's saying, if you intermarry with these Canaanites, their gods, you will be tempted to worship their gods. Now this sounds foreign to us, because in our day and age today, I mean, obviously, people get married of all different backgrounds. There's nothing wrong with that. So why would Joshua be so passionate about this in his farewell address? Well, again, at first this seems like a strange direction. But as anyone who is married knows, when you marry someone, you marry them as they are. Amen? Wasn't strong, guys. Wasn't strong. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah. Just as they are, right? When I do weddings and have the blessing of being a part of a wedding ceremony, I always try to tell them, you're taking them just as they are. It's like when you go buy something at a store, it says, as is, it's as is. Like this is, there's no refund, no return policy. This is it. This is who you got. So good luck, right? Like God bless you. So when you marry someone though, you realize you don't just marry them. You also marry their family. You marry into their passions, their hobbies, their interests, also into their beliefs. And so here, Joshua's warning is, listen, you're going to be living in among people that don't worship God. Don't get married into those relationships, into those dynamics, because if you do, there's going to be a temptation to worship their gods. And that's going to lead you astray. Joshua's warning was nothing more than a warning that if you marry and cleave to someone that is not a follower of God, but a follower of idols, that is going to affect you. It has great potential to lead you astray, is the idea. He's trying to encourage them. Listen, if you just guard against this, you will find, you will not be tempted to move in this direction. Now, fast forward through the Old Testament. King Ahab made a decision to marry someone who did not worship God. Her name was Jezebel. And because of that, and because of his love for her, he allowed her to build temples to to idols. All these different things were going on in the land that she was able to worship and mislead the people because, well, King Ahab's okay with it. And he turned his back on the things of God because he's loved his wife so much he was willing to do anything for her. And we see this time and time again in the Old Testament. We see it even in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. As Christians, we are called and encouraged to marry Christians. See, it's not a a racial thing. It's nothing to do with backgrounds that way. It's, are they a believer or are they not a believer? It doesn't matter their background. Because the Bible says, as Christians, if we marry a non-Christian, we're going to be tempted to not cleave unto the Lord, to not cleave unto the things of God. We're going to be tempted to walk away from the things that God has called us to do. Why are Christians told not to marry non-Christians? Because as a follower of Christ, your desire is to live for Christ. This means in your hobbies, interests, parenting, finances, and church involvement. An unbeliever will not understand your desire for these things. And at times, this will cause undue tension and stress in your marriage. Now, does this mean 
that if you are a Christian and your spouse is not a Christian, not a believer, that you divorce them. No, the Apostle Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians. He says, no, if anything, you are now a light unto them. You are now a chance for them to see and hear the gospel, which has happened. But the difference here is this. It's the ideal. It's when you enter into an idea of marrying someone, this is something you should be considering, is what Paul's saying. Don't just marry them because you're attracted to them or you have an interest in them or you have similar hobbies or like interests. It, it's more than that. Because once you join in marriage, this holy union, now you're joined with them. And the Bible says that, that when people do this and there's uh, uh, believers and non-believers, that's going to cause tension. It's going to cause stress. It doesn't mean we just walk away. It means we say, Lord, give me strength to be a light and a witness to this person. And one of the greatest stories that I can think of in this regard is uh, Julie Johnson and Randy Johnson, who Randy went home to be with the Lord. But before he went home to be with the Lord years ago, back in, I think it was 2012, they were married and she was a believer and he was not. And, and she struggled with that for a long time, you know, bringing kids to church without him and doing things for the Lord without his real desire or interest. And it really was a weight on their marriage for 30 years. But then one day, Randy decided, sitting in church, to come forward and say, I need Jesus Christ in my life. And you know why that happened? The Spirit of God worked. He had been attending church. He attended church often, to the point where when he came up to me and said, I need to receive Christ, I said, I thought you were already saved, because you're here all the time. But you know why that happened? Because his wife, who was a believer, prayed for 30 years, Lord, would you save him? Lord, would you save him? Lord, would you do a work in his heart? So that happens. But why would Paul, why would Joshua give us these encouragements? Because he's saying, this is God's ideal. Why would you invite undue stress and tension into your marriage? So that's why Joshua says, avoid this. Again, Paul is laying forth God's ideal. And his ideal is that marriage reflect the love of Christ for his church, which is fully realized when both husband and wife are in Christ. Thirdly, third encouragement that Joshua gives here. And I know, let me say quickly, I know that's a lot to unpack, what I just went through. So I, I don't mean to just kind of, you know, glaze over it. If you're here and, and you want to have any discussion about that, please let me know. I'd love to talk to you more about that if you find yourself in that situation. Um, I would love to do anything I could to encourage you and, and just pray with you or maybe connect you with some, some other people that can encourage you. Um, but I don't want to make that sound like I'm just kind of saying that and move on. So... Um, if that is something that you're struggling with, please don't, don't do that on your own. We want to walk with you. So thirdly, and this time really quickly. I really mean it this time. <laughs> sort of. Okay, thirdly. So we are to be aware the Lord can drive out or drive them out or drive them in. So we're going to unpack this a little bit. Be aware that the Lord can drive them out or drive them in. Chapter 23, look at verse 13. Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. Now, this is a very strongly worded message from the Lord, and it is meant to be an encouragement. Here's the encouragement. Joshua makes it clear. That just as easily as God drove out the enemies of Israel in the land, he can deliver the Israelites into the enemy's hands. You see, this is not God being vindictive. This is God allowing the natural results of their choices 
to come to be. And yet through it all, he is still gracious. The book of Judges, again, records the Israelites disobeying God and chasing after idols. As a result, their heart was not for God. So he, through oppression, drew their heart back to him. They would repent and God would deliver them. You see, in the book of Judges, it's constantly cycle after cycle of a nation, an enemy nation of oppressing Israel, uh, making them subservient to them, ruling over them. They, Israelites would finally repent and cry out to God. God would bring a judge that would deliver them, and Israel would live in rest for a number of years. But then the Israelites again would go back to worshiping idols. God would bring an oppressed nation. They would cry out in repentance. God would bring a deliverer. They would be in rest. The Israelites worshipped idols. An oppressive nation came in. They were under stress. They were servants to this other nation. They repented. God sent a judge. There was deliverance. There was rest. This happens over and over and over and over again. Something like around seven times in the book of Judges, this cycle repeats. When I read this, I think, wow, these guys are dense. And then I realize by the Spirit's moving as only he can, oh no, you are dense. And I go, oh, thank you, Lord, for grace. Because this is the whole point. Nowhere did God keep any of this from them. You want to live blessed in the land? Here's how you do it. You want to see the nations rise up against you? That can happen too. It's ultimately their choice. God invites them, and to be honest, us, into a relationship because he knows when we are obeying his word, we will have the most peace, joy, and fulfillment in this life. Why do we obey his word? Why do we put our faith in him? Because that will bring the fullness of this life. That will bring the greatest joy. That will bring the greatest peace. Not because God's in heaven going, mm, you guys need to worship me because I'm awesome. And you, you better worship me. Like a child throwing a temper tantrum. No, he is the holy, just, mighty God who breathed life into every one of us and sustains the universe. And he says, when you worship me, you will be blessed. It's for your blessing that you should worship me, and it honors and glorifies God. Which, by the way, is the whole point of this life. To, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So God encourages them. Just as easily as I drove them out, I can drive them right back in. It's up to you. Lastly, we need to be thankful that God has given them the promised land. They are called to be thankful that God has given them the promised land. Uh, chapter 24 in verse 13. And I have given you a land. So he's speaking to the nation of Israel. For I've given you a land for which you did not labor. And cities which you built not. And you dwell in them. And of the vineyards and the olive yards which you planted not. Do you eat? What is he saying here? Joshua is saying, God has given you all of this. God has given you the land. God has given you provision. God has provided for you. And the people need to be thankful for this. The people need to continue to walk by faith and trust in the Lord. He gave them the land as he said he would. And they were blessed in the land because of his grace and his blessing over them. Joshua reminds them that they lived in houses they didn't build. Reaped from vineyards they didn't plant. And he continues to provide for them in all of their needs because he is good and he's gracious and he's loving to them. And he's saying, I did all of this for you. I did all of this so that you would have all your needs met. And so this thankfulness should lead them to something. We read it already, but verse 14. Now, therefore, and I love when it says now, therefore, why, 
Why does he word it this way? Because right after 13, when he says, remember how good I was to you, and I gave you these cities, and I gave you these vineyards, and I gave you these olive yards, and I gave you all that I gave you, how good I was to you. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away these idols. Why? Because the idols didn't give you the land. The idols didn't provide for you. The idols aren't blessing you. The idols aren't going to be there for you and never forsake you. That's me. That's God. I'm doing this. So because of what I've done, isn't God amazing? He doesn't have to show us this, but he chooses to. Because of what I've done, would you put away these idols and would you worship me? And specifically, what does he say there in verse 14? Fear the Lord and serve the Lord. To fear the Lord, this is more than respect. This is to honor him in holiness. It is also the beginning of wisdom and to serve the Lord. When I fear him, I know who he is and I will then serve him. You see, Joshua was a consistent and faithful leader, but the people had to make their own choice. One more verse. Joshua twenty four fifteen. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve whether the gods which are your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, Joshua calls them to make a choice. Choose today. He doesn't say tomorrow. He doesn't say, I'll give you six weeks to think about it, to think over the pros and cons and what you want to do. He says, no, no, no. It's time to make a choice. Because I've established all the reasons why you should choose to follow him. But you need to make a choice. Choose today whom you're going to follow. Notice Joshua 24, 31. They chose to follow the Lord. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that oversaw or overlived Joshua and which had all known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. They chose to serve the Lord all the days of the lives of Joshua and the elders that outlived Joshua. So my challenge to us this morning is very simple. How will we respond to the call of Joshua in our lives? How will we respond to what God is calling us to, which is to make a choice? You see, the same choice that they had is the same choice we made. Choose today whom you will serve. And when we fear him and serve him, we will discover a stronger and more courageous faith in our lives. Although Joshua was an average man, he was just a normal guy. There was nothing intrinsically great about Joshua that made him more usable than anyone else. This is why I love our God, because he uses the average and the ordinary to do things that we can't even explain. And I love it, because I'm pretty ordinary. I know a lot of ordinary, average people. I'm so thankful that God says, hey, that's fine. Would you just surrender to me, serve me, and fear me, and I'll use you to do great things. But we got to make a choice. Joshua made a choice early in his life. And the book of Joshua reveals that an average man dedicated to God can be mightily used. So will you choose today? You may say, well, pastor, I'm saved. I received Christ as my Lord and Savior. I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. Praise God. But that's not exactly what I'm asking you. So you can know Christ, but are you choosing today to live for him today? Are you choosing to live for him today? That you will surrender and serve and fear him above all things. Putting away the idols. That maybe your father served. Maybe some of you didn't grow up in a Christian home and you grew up with these idols in your life and you can put those away and say, no, I'm surrendering to him today. But maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. 
Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe you've been baptized as a baby. Maybe there's all kinds of things that you've done that are religious things. That's not what we're asking. We're asking, do you know Christ? Do you have a moment in your life where you repented of your sins? That means to understand you've sinned, turn from that sin, and turn to him. Where you've repented from your sins, and you've trusted and believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've asked him to save you from your sins, and you've committed your life to him. If you've not done that, you can do that today when we close in prayer. Just right there in your heart, between you and him. You don't need to talk to someone else. You can talk to him. And he will save you if you'll cry out and ask for forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, again, I, I thank you for the, just the attentiveness of this church, Lord, their patience. As we have gone a little over our time, Lord, I just thank you for their willingness to just continue to keep their eyes on you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and personal Savior, that they would come to know you before they leave this place. It's not about religion. It's not about a denomination. It's not about a religious work or a good work that we do. It is solely about just personally receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to individually, of our own mind and heart, repent of our sin, turn from that sin, surrender it to you, realize that we've fallen short of the glory of God. We're not perfect. To believe that you died on the cross, was buried, and rose again for our salvation, that we could be forgiven of that sin. That we'd surrender our lives to you, we'd commit our lives to you as followers of Christ, and we would make the choice today to choose to serve you, to fear you, because you are so mighty, you are so majestic, you are so wonderful. These words we try to describe you fall short, but it's just, you are everything that we could ever need and want, and you are always there for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as only you can, by the working of your spirit, you would make these things real to us. And I pray, Lord, if there's somebody here that's a follower of Christ but has drifted, that they would make the choice today. When we stand in a moment and sing, they'd come forward and they'd bend a knee and they'd say, Lord, I'm surrendered. I'm making the choice today to live for you. Father, we thank you for all of this and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? We're going to be led in a song of invitation. Invitation is very simple. We want to give you a chance to respond. Whether they're in your seats or maybe you'd like to come forward and bend a knee in the front and just take a moment to pray. As some already begin to move, would you come and say, Lord, I want to choose today to surrender to you or to know you as my Savior. Whatever God is doing, would you respond as we sing?